the new year has started off with a bit of a bang for the Artifexian podcast bill in that apparently out of nowhere we've charted. We got an email from somebody. I don't know who this person is. Uh, I won't name them, but they sat, they look like they're from like a, a legit company. And they were like, hey, just so, they, just so you know, the Artifexian podcast is now ranked number 234 on the Apple Podcasts book chart in the US. Which is like cool and also baffling, and uh, yeah, I guess that's huh. a thing, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> Weird. Um. And we are like, I mean, remember we had this whole thing where uh, we were listed as education and technology for a while, and then I didn't feel good about that, so I, I moved us to literature, which I also still don't feel good about. <laughs> but there's no real genre to describe what what it is we do here. Give us a world building category. Exactly. We'll dominate us. Exactly. We'll dominate the category of one. I know there's 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 world building podcasts out there. And um yeah, so that's I'm assuming why we have charted in the books section. I'm just really mm-hmm. glad that we're going to in the future talk about books on this podcast. Um yeah. that, makes, that makes me feel good about being in the book chart. <laughs> uh, so that's the first point i just thought that was cool just a fun thing to bring up um second point is there is new merch we did a poll last month i believe um on whether or not people wanted to see ripped bill ripped edgar or both of us on a shirt as is predicted of course everyone went both of us and i had to go through the uncomfortable experience of a vectorizing myself semi-nude and putting it on a t-shirt which uh, i can't say i enjoyed but that t-shirt exists and you can find it in the links in the show notes on the artifacting podcast teespring store um yeah it's a white t-shirt bill on the front edgar on the back does what it says on the tin <laughs> where's the oh yes okay i can see i can see the back there now that's hilarious Oh, and as for the person, again, who, who made the artwork, if you wish to purchase uh, one of these things, just email us a um, like a, a proof of purchase or whatever, and we'll sub you back uh, a, free, a free t-shirt on that, just you know, for the sake of it, because you made the art. And uh, I will, as follow-up next month, I'll see if anyone outside of the creator actually purchased this t-shirt, because if someone does, I kind, I kind of want that person to email us and just tell us why, <laughs> because that would be really interesting to why are you buying this t-shirt of all t-shirts but there you go i mean i i love it but i don't think i'm narcissistic enough to wear it myself (laughs) i just about i'm getting comfortable with the notion of wearing my own merch as in just like with my own logo on it uh in places where branding uh is is desirable i'm just about comfortable with that i am never ever i think going to be comfortable wearing uh myself an image of myself on my chest like that is just that's so strange. It's you know Steve O from from Jackass. I do. He has a giant portrait of himself on his back, like as in as yeah, cartoon. He does. <laughs> that's, like, that's like that's hilarious. But I could never do that. Like that is just that takes that that takes a special sort of person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like you know, wearing your own wearing your own band merch like at a concert like while performing is, is a little gauche um oh yeah that's not really a thing you see people do seldom yeah so you see it sometimes and i think it varies from scene to scene but i i i think it's a little 
I know it's a, it's a little uh, classless. You should you should like rep other people when you're on stage, um, unless it's part of a costume. Like there's there's bands who they like they have quite an elaborate appearance or a very like specifically curated appearance, and then you can buy elements of that outfit, and that's the same as what they were on stage. I think that's a little bit of a different situation. What happens if? Do you think this sort of unwritten rule of not wearing your own t-shirt, not re- wearing your own merch? Do you think this uh, extends to non-concert uh, scenarios? So, like, if the band is doing, like, a, I don't know, a record signing or a book signing, uh, do you think it's gauche for them to wear their own merch in that instance? A little bit, yeah. Hmm. I, I, I think within within metal, I certainly like how I kind of perceive it as a fan, you're, 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 you're giving information about like what else you care about, what other bands you care about. And it kind of, it, it situates you within a culture. Um, and I think it's a little weird to just kind of focus totally on yourself instead. Hmm. Do you think it's gauche for YouTubers to wear their own merch? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not in YouTube enough to say, I, I don't really notice it that much. I'd say. Um, and it's, it's kind of, that's a newer culture and it's more fundamental to how they make their money. Right. Arguably. I mean, maybe not. I mean, like merch is a big deal for bands, but yeah, it's, it seems, it feels a little different and I'm not sure exactly why. Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I always find it a little bit, uh, a little bit tactless. Um, like even, even creators that I really like on YouTube, they're just, they constantly mm. wear their own merch and just, it feels a little bit used car salesman. Um, right. But then, like, I also have the, the opposite opinion of kind of like, like you pointed out, merch is a big deal for creators, particularly creators who suffer from uh, the demonetization bot an awful lot on YouTube. Um, that mm-hmm. sort of direct support is a really important part. So, like, they should be able to uh, to, to plug it. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and I, I've kind of thought about whether or not I want to wear my own merch on camera to, like, properly be branding. Uh, and it's not something that I'm immediately comfortable with. Um, I know it's I don't know it's an interesting thing. Um, yeah. But anyhow, I know Adam Neely does. Now, now that I think about it, Adam Neely wears like the the Lick T-shirt sometimes, or he did when it was it was new enough, and it, I did, it, that didn't strike me as weird. Yeah, but that that's like a joke. Like that T-shirt is like yeah. a joke. It'd be the equivalent of like me wearing this ripped Bill, ripped Edgar T-shirt, like. Yeah. That's not a serious attempt at, at branding or a serious attempt at sales. It's just like, although you, you could you could wear that because on camera the front is what's going to be visible, so it'll be an image of me, not an image of you. Can you imagine if I actually did that? No one would have a clue what's happening because obviously, like the YouTube audience is so much bigger uh, than the podcast audience. It'd be like, why is he wearing like this white shirt with like this naked dude with an eagle on it? Like they'd have no reference. <laughs> And even even people who listen to the podcast... Do it! Um, do it! Do it! Do it! I'm totally not doing it. Uh, but what you call it? Even people who listen to the podcast, I'd say a good majority of them don't know what either or... Well, what you look like um, mm-hmm. as well. So, uh, yeah, that would be a really strange non-sequitur and I'm not going to do it. And no amount of cajoling <laughs> is going to get me to do it. Okay, so that was pre-show. Shall we do some follow-up? We got a question on the on the subreddit 
for last episode from user Granny Jim. And the question is, how do the people in the cradle know that the other planets are inhabited by people? Is this because of the Bini, or do they have good enough technology to actually observe the surfaces of other planets? Um, I can't remember what I said specifically about the people in the cradle. Uh, I know I did say that the the people of uh, Vasa and of uh, Ikern are aware of that the other planets are inhabited. Um, people in the cradle generally would, I suspect. Not all of them would. Um, the cradle is quite diverse. In some ways, it's probably a bit more a bit more uh, diverse than the other planets, and a, there's a lot more variation in terms of in terms of technology and uh, information and knowledge of of the rest of the universe. But generally, uh, people who who are aware that the other planets are inhabited would know through the same way as um, or people who believe that the other planets are inhabited wouldn't would be believe it because of stories the same way that the uh, Ikern and Fasath mostly know. Um for people who have like actual positive knowledge of it, uh, some of them would be able to uh like have telescopes and they can see like lights and things and you know stuff on the night side of of the other planets. Um and then some wouldn't know, I suspect. Hmm. The Bini, not super involved in that. The Bini kind of keep to themselves uh, in terms of what they share about their knowledge. Um, they they have a presence on every other planet um, or every other human inhabited planet, but they don't. Um, it's the inhabitants of each planet aren't necessarily aware that the Bini have a presence on the other planets. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you're on um, Fasath, you know about the Bini, and you know the Bini are different to to Fasathi humans. You don't necessarily know that they are from the Cradle, and you don't necessarily know that they uh, have tr- they have the ability to travel between them. Oh, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, is do you think there's are there people uh on the various planets who are like conspiracy theorists and like they shun uh the stories that tell of inhabited other planets and they don't listen to the experts with their telescopes and they're just like no there's no other life in the universe but on this planet. Um, it's very possible on Cradle. Um, hmm. I imagine it would be less common on the other two planets because all of their ancestral knowledge and stories and stuff are about coming from other another planet. Okay. So it would be it would be quite it would be quite unusual. I'm sure there are people who do believe that, but it would be very much a minority kind of belief. Cool. Cool. That's that's a really cool uh, really cool answer to a really cool question. Yeah, great question. I, I find that kind of stuff very helpful, like think trying to trying to model what the inhabitants or what the characters within your setting know and why they know it. That's that's a really great that's a great tool for me. So that that uh that question was exactly along my interests. Thank you, Granny Jim. Oh class. Uh behind the scenes stuff for the listeners here. I picked out that question. Bill didn't. I went through Reddit to to uh, formulate the show notes. So I'm very happy that I picked out a question that Bill really enjoys. I've done <laughs> my job as a curator of feedback. 
Um, Granny Jim, uh, also there's a second part to Granny Jim's uh, question here that uh, I'm going to tackle. Um, they ask, uh, when building naturalistic human conlangs, do you think it's important to obey what's currently seen as universal grammar? For instance, uh, would it be possible to construct a language where determiners and their noun phrases aren't next to each other? Um, so, for example, um, if you had like this cat, uh, this being the determiner, cat being the noun, um, could you construct a sentence where you have like cat, word, 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 this, for example, like they're just, they're no longer beside each other. Um, the answer to that is like strictly going by the wording of your question if your aim is to create a naturalistic human conlang then yeah you should stick to uh the universals of grammar because they will kind of spit out for you something that seems like it's a naturalistic human conlang um but don't but if your intentions are in any way deviant from that um don't don't feel uh, obliged to stick to the universals of grammar and i would always encourage people to uh try out something funky with language like uh spitting apart determiners and nouns uh and seeing what that produces and if the results are in any way coherent at all because uh through experimentation great invention uh inventions can be had mm-hmm um, so that's that. Thank you, Granny Jim, for writing in. Uh, we have, I have some Star Wars follow-up, Bill, if that's okay with you. Yeah, of course. So in in general, um, just uh, little thoughts about uh, Star Wars. Um, it's mad. From listening to other reviews uh, and people talk about Star Wars, I really seem to be in the minority of people who, like, enjoyed the film. Um, not thinking that it's great or anything, just being like, yeah, it, was, it was fun silliness that didn't didn't really make a whole bunch of sense. Um, and that was fine. Um, most people were like, this is, this is stupid. Like, this is mega stupid. And people seem to be very upset about it, which is, you know, uh, it seems to be par for the course uh, when it comes to modern Star Wars. Um, but it was just weird being not in the majority. It was strange. Um, there was a really interesting thing I heard one reviewer uh, comment about this film. Um, they said uh, something to the effect of this whole trilogy is plagued with this sort of like modern uh, concept of storytelling whereby subversion trumps like just like a bog ordinary narrative. Like so they're, they're more they're more interested in subverting our expectations and like setting us up and undercutting us and things and that than just telling a story. And I think that's, that I, I really, that really resonated with me because I think so much of the problems with this trilogy is like, they're just playing with the sort of weight of the mythology that they have and, and, and forgot to tell just a story, a coherent story along the way. Um, so that was some of my general thoughts. Have have you come? Have you any general feelings having uh, stewed in the culture for a little bit since the last time we recorded? Um, no, my my, my thoughts are pretty much what they were. No, nothing has really changed it that much for me. I, I I heard a couple of um other further criticisms, a couple of like mild defenses of it, but nothing really stuck with me that much. Um, so, I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. It was worth a watch, but it wasn't good would be my, my takeaway. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so the uh, the bit oh the bit of Star Wars follow up that I really want to bring up is uh, comes via Hunwin uh, on Reddit. And do you remember we talked about the cavalry charge? Uh, the gold yeah. horse cavalry charge on board on top of and the- how immensely dope it was yeah it, it, it definitely was dope bill <laughs> definitely dope um do uh, i voice concerns about how that was really jarring because i figured that the people on the gold horses would need some sort of space equipment because they're like high up in the atmosphere and surely altitude sickness in the whole shebang uh hunwin did i'm going to link this in the, in the show notes hunwin did uh, an excellent bit of like uh mathematics that really speaks to me because i feel like i am this nerd as well wanting to pick apart the numbers and they essentially calculated that um the the a realistic level for these star destroyers to be at in the atmosphere is just below denver so it's entirely plausible for them to conduct combat on the wing of the star destroyer at that level for a short period of time without needing uh, without feeling effects and without uh, needing a spacesuit, uh, they go on to uh, to say that the problem is not that the problem is that the poor horses uh, are native to the the place where they come from is a small moon uh, with like one fifth the gravity, and they're being transported onto Exegol or whatever, which has uh, apparently crushing gravity. Um, and John Boyega, the last bit here is that. Uh, or is it John Boy- uh, John Boyega on on top of said horse uh, in that gravity uh, would be the equivalent of an Earth horse carrying three hundred and nine point five percent of its own body weight. So the poor horses <laughs> wouldn't survive that cavalry charge, uh, but the people fighting on the wing of the Star Destroyer will be a okay. And I think that's brilliant. Links in the show notes to this bit of mathematics. It's wonderfully fun and. <laughs> Just the right amount of nerds that really warms the cockles of my heart. So I'm just getting this great image of a horse trying to carry three horses. <laughs> like three uh, horses trying to ride a horse. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, what's it called? <laughs> Hunwin, Hunwin has a really nice visual thing here. He's like, that would be like taking two Toyota Camrys and putting them onto a horse. Period. End of comment. And I'm like, yes, it's great. Well, so a horse is like two thirds of a car. Uh, I, I can I can buy that. I'm assuming um, yeah. a Toyota Camry is quite a small car. Yeah, I could I could totally buy that. Uh, but yeah, so everyone should go check it out. It's brilliant. So it turns out, Bill, your uh, intuition was correct there. Um, they'd be totally fine on the wing of a Star Destroyer, but we did not. None of us considered the poor the poor goat horses. <laughs> Uh, and so final bit of oh, this isn't even follow up but final bit of stuff from email uh, that we received uh, we had another contribution to uh, Shit Flag Corner uh, this month and it comes via Jacob who I believe has written in before um, and they send us uh, a, the standard of the Irish Brigade during an expedition of it to Scotland in 1644. It's very specific mm-hmm. uh, flag nerdery going on here. And it is glorious. <laughs> so uh, do you, should I uh, should I describe or should you describe? Um, 
You can describe, sure. All right, so we're looking at uh, what appears to be a square flag. Bear in mind that this is often someone's reconstruction of the flag on Wikipedia. So um, yeah. take that with a pinch of salt. Uh, we're looking at a square flag of like bright highlighter yellow, right? Like the brightest, most saturated yellow you can possibly get. Um, in the Canton, we have a, uh, what's that thing called? The George St. Andrew's Cross? Is that what's that called? It's St. Patrick's Saltire. St. Patrick's Saltire, except uh, it's so it's a red uh, like cross saltire thing uh, yeah. with what appears to be like a a, a red border, uh, but the negative space on the canton is also highlighter yellow. So it seems really weird. It's as if someone it was meant to be white, white and red, uh, but someone just deleted the white in Illustrator and left and left it as is. It looks really bizarre. Uh, but directly below that, we have what I assume is Latin, um, and it perhaps reads as Vivat Carolus Rex, maybe? And that means yeah. something. I don't know what that means. Something to do with a king, maybe? Yeah, I, I, I know what it means. Oh, what's it mean? Well, um, this is like an educated guess. I don't, I don't read Latin. But based on the time period and the, the context and, like, what I could figure out from the Latin, it means, like, long live King Charles. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, viva. Viva as in, like, life. Yeah. Yeah. And Carolus, Carolus would be Charles. That makes sense. Uh, and then below uh, viva Carolus Rex, we have a giant sea ore. Um, mm-hmm. Carolus Rex. Carolus Rex. And then below that, we have a uh, image of uh, the crown. Um, Mm -hmm. And then to the right of that, so going over on to the fly side of the flag, we have, oh, Jesus, my Latin's going to be terrible here. Exorgat devs dissipertrixur inimixus, whatever that means. Exorgat deus dissipertrixur inimicus. And do you know, are you able to decipher what that is? No, but Google Translate's about to. <laughs> I love the confidence. The confidence that it'll actually get it right, not just spit out nonsense. Um, while you're Google Translating, uh, above that bit of text is an image of uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, <laughs> holding out. And like this image is like, it's like a photorealistic, high-fidelity Reproduction, like it's not stylized in any way, shape, or form. It's as if someone got this uh, image from like a a book and like cut it out and stuck it on the flag. It's so jarring, given that everything else is uh, graphical, uh, stylized, or just textual. It's really bizarre. And so uh, uh, Jesus is wearing a uh, like a, a sort of jade robe, and he has a big orange halo, and he has his. Uh, his right arm raised up in like praise and his other arm is like out flat. Uh, and it's just, it's so, so jarring uh, that it's so hyper-realistic and on this like garish yellow background. It is beautiful. Um, Sorry. Uh, I, I got distracted by trying to figure out what, what was going on there and I found something very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, this, this is marvelous. Now we we've kind of this has come up before that it's a it's a military standard rather than a flag. Sure, yeah. Um, in a in a strict sense, so there are there are some differences in in the culture and in in how it will be perceived in that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, it's it's definitely something. <laughs> it's it's just, it's the Jesus, man. The Jesus gets me. Like, I'm willing to, I'm willing to be okay with all that text and yeah. to have a flag within a flag and then a crown. Like, that's fine. But it's the hyper-realistic Jesus that is just like, what were you, what were you thinking? Could you not have done, yeah. you know, there's, isn't that the symbol, there's a symbol, um, it looks like a fish. Isn't that a symbol for Jesus in Christianity? Uh, yeah, but not in that time period. Oh, okay. Because I was about to say, like, there must be some sort of stylized representation of Jesus they could use. In in modern times, um, that uh, that's mostly used by uh, evangelical churches, I think. Um, I don't think it would have been in use in the 1600s. And again, like in the context of this here, this was a heavily religiously coded conflict. Oh no, hold on. Well, let me think about this for a second. This was the English Civil War, so they were fighting against dissenters and, and disestablishmentarians and stuff. So, they but they were in support of a nominally Protestant king. But they would have been this would have been a, a Catholic, um, a Catholic brigade or whatever. Yeah, the Irish Brigade. Um, mm-hmm. So that would probably would have been relevant to their to their branding or whatever the term you want to use is in some way. Man, do you know what I think? What? I think they should have just went with a cardboard cutout of Jesus and just left it at that. Like, get rid of everybody else. Just go into battle with your just like a life-size cardboard cutout of Jesus and be like... No, like are... no actual standard, just a cardboard cutout on a stick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 100%. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then like make the stick like really... Uh, or maybe instead of stick, like some sort of system of like uh, fishing wire which may or may not have been around in like the 1600s uh, so that like when when face when facing this brigade uh, it'll appear like there's just like a series of floating Jesuses like they're performing miracles in front of them you know like it doesn't look like it's a picture of Jesus on a stick it, it, it looks like like literal Jesus floating there not being <laughs> held up by anyone that's what that's what I think they should have done <laughs> um so Will I will I tell you what I found here? Yes, tell me. I'm intrigued, Bill. So I was I was putting this into Google Translate. Exergat Deus the Spectator Inimicus. Mm-hmm. Um, apologies to any Latin scholars for my total guess at the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's contemporary Hibernian Latin. Just it's it's a valid variant. <laughs> um, so I put that in. And Google Translate could not tell me what it was. I got... Let me get it back up here. Um, Let God disapextver enemy, right? So, obviously, there's something wrong with disapextver. That's not a word. And I changed it to Hmm. disapextur, like changed the V to a U, and still got nothing. So, I Googled that word, disapextver, to see what we could get. See if it would, like, come up in in a dictionary or something. Um... And I found a blog from September 2012 um, by someone who I guess is a is like a historical wargamer. And th- so the blog is called Project Alderaan 1645, Wargaming the War of the Three Kingdoms in Scotland. So this is this time period. Hmm. Um, and they have another image of the the flag of the Irish Brigade on their blog. Um, and it's, there are no contemporary illustrations, they say, 
Um, but they are taken from uh, descriptions in a news sheet from 1644. Ah. Yes. Um, and there's a couple of other ones here. There's a similar one here um, from another Irish brigade, um, which is white background, but with still with a yellow canton and a red uh, saltire, and then a red cross with 12 golden rays coming out of it. Um in, in the place of Jesus, where Jesus is in our one. It still says Vivat Cordalis Rex. There's a C-or and a crown. And then there's a, a, a different Latin motto at the bottom, which reads, uh, Aquium est pro Christo mori, which means um, it is just to die for Christ. Jesus, that's bleak. Holy Christ. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the so the reason this comes up is they have a little bit here about the Disapextriver, and it was a misprint in a book uh, called uh, Scots Armies of the English Civil Wars by a guy called Stuart Reed, and he misprinted the the motto as Exergat Deus Disapextriver, uh, but it should be Exergat Deus Disapentur. In the Missy, um, which has been translated here as "Let God arise and let His enemies be scattered." Oh man, can yeah. we all, uh, listeners, can we all just take a second to, to to acknowledge that Bill did all of this investigation while I was talking about the flag, which is not enough time in my mind to be able to do all of that. Like you, you, you identified a problem. Tried a possible solution, couldn't find it, researched the problem, found the solution, and then now are presenting it. And all of that time, I was banging on about Jesus. All live on air. But I mean, that, that's also why I got distracted um, and, and, and responded a little bit more slowly than usual. Um, but yes, so there it is. I will send you this link and you can put it in the, uh, in the, the show notes. And... Um, Oh, this hasn't been. This blog hasn't been updated for two years now, so maybe it's maybe it's defunct. Um, but hopefully, uh, you'll all go and visit the blog, and the blogger will see their analytics spike for some reason, and be very uh, curious as to why. Um, exactly. And maybe it'll make them happy. Links in the show notes. Uh, really quick thing before I move on to main topic, just um, the misspelling. Uh, remind me of it. I am constantly shocked by the amount of errors that appear in good sources. Um, like, there's been uh, a couple of times in my videos where I've, like, bought, an, uh, like, a book by an actual linguist from, like, an academic press, and I just use their examples uh, in a video. And then people who speak the language that I'm using, notable was Portuguese and Italian, I mucked both of those up, um, people are like, that's not uh, how... Uh, uh, Italian works or that's not how Portuguese work and I look at the book and I'm like that's the exact example printed here it's crazy and then the last video I made uh, which we'll discuss later on the show uh, some of the mathematics was just like wrong in in the paper um, they were like here's a load of Kaktovic uh, in Upiak numbers and it means uh, this number and I'm like no like it doesn't like that doesn't work mathematically at all and it's just bizarre, like, um, so it's made me really think about, like, every time I get a source, no matter where it comes from, um, it constantly needs to be checked. Because you, like, you even can't rely on experts in their field to, like, get it correct, which is just 
deeply disturbing. I I was going to say, you know, there could be variations in... Because I thought you were going to initially make this about spelling. And, I mean, trying to transcribe languages in Latin script isn't always uh, easily done. And there are different systems and stuff. And that could be part of it. But that's not that wasn't really relevant to what you said. Um, when are the examples in, say, Portuguese or Italian from? And, like, what, what is the nature of the the mistake or the nature of the error because things can change over time or no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that the, the, the native speakers are wrong, but the, the it, it's maybe that the language has shifted since. Is that possible in, in the examples you're talking about or? I mean, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd want to be an expert on like, you know, how Italian has changed over the course of yeah. the past, you know, a couple of generations to really, uh, that's that your that next story. video topic. You what? That should be your next video topic. No, <laughs> not even slightly. Uh, but the 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 example I remember, or at least vaguely remember, is um, uh, it was I think it was demonstrating. I think something to do with mood or modality, um, and uh, the linguist gave an example from uh, I think it was Italian in in this instance, and the linguist is a dude called Palmer. Uh, it's uh, from a book called Moon Modality, second edition. I'm looking at it right now, uh, and it's published by Cambridge Press. And uh, the example, the feedback I got from people who speak Italian was that like that's like not grammatically correct that sentence. Um, right. Which is, which you know, I, I guess the way you pronounce things can change a little bit. I know grammar can change a little bit, but like getting something. Something where native speakers go like that makes literally no sense. That seems a little bit beyond the scope of the language change a little bit since this book was written in the whatever the eighties or something. Um, yeah, it just no, seems like they just got it wrong. Yeah, which is which is totally fine. Like everyone gets a thing wrong. It's just it's it just yeah. You're you're reminded how fallible humans are when the experts in their field uh, miss yeah put in typos or miscite a thing, and you're like, oh dear. We're all fallible. All we're doing is trading fallible information with one another in the hopes that we come up with something decent at the end of the day. And that's a really scary thought. World billing. World billing. What do you got for us? Um, I have written something for you this episode. Shock horror. Shock horror. There's, you know... A- 90% chance that's what I've done. <laughs> that's fair. Sometimes it's a map. Sometimes it's a map, but not this time. Okay, we're back in Ecairn this episode. Mm-hmm. And I'll just get straight into it. For sure. Go for it. Increasing danger of northern settlements. Late events suggest that the smaller settlements in the northern regions are under ever greater threats from attack and isolation. Recently returned traders and patrols travelling the Mirsfir-Jikav route bring reports of terrible events at the town of Smathir, a remote settlement of a few dozen souls lying off a tributary of the main trading corridor. Discovered by a Tamari patrol vessel, responding to accounts of distressed messages received by regional free traders. This outlying town was recently utterly demolished by an assault of unknown beasts. Investigation by the officers of the vessel, the Aspire, determined a likely course of events as follows. 
While a free trader was stopped at Smatfir, presumably on routine business, the attack began. At least three creatures emerged from the thick forest to the west of the town, the west being the direction with the least clearance between the town's walls and the tree line. Several citizens managed to retreat within the walls. Those who did not were quickly killed by the assaulting creatures. Despite the full defences being raised against the attack, the creatures quickly destroyed part of the fortifications and gained entry to the town proper. Those townfolk who had not sought shelter underground were crushed in their attempt to fight against the invasion. Several attempted to flee aboard the free trader's vessel, which turned its batteries upon the attackers. The vessel was quickly brought down and crashed into several buildings, starting a fire. The remaining townsfolk, hiding in their own cellars or in the vault below the central warehouse, were not spared. Those that did not perish in the fire were killed by the creatures digging into their refuges and brutally killing every citizen of Smathir. The determination of the officers of the Aspire, based on their observations of the site, the spoor of the beasts, and the apparent intelligence and cruelty demonstrated in their assault, was that this attack was carried out by at least three Arviks. Arviks have never before been known to venture so far south, nor to seek out human settlements outside their native ranges. The free trader was named as Captain Felin Klastba, an itinerant merchant of the vessel Sweet Fog, a veteran visitor to the towns of this region, and well-known and well-loved in those parts. Should this be a portent of future assaults by the violent creatures of the deep interior, the lives and the trades of Abesque people are in grave danger. Between increased attacks, harsher climates, and the subversion of our trade and morals by other nations, life in the hinterlands is becoming more precarious. The cities cannot sustain themselves without the labours of the outlying towns, and it is apparent the lesser towns may no longer be able to sustain themselves simply on their own industry. To preserve the security of Abesque, whether on the frontiers or in the spires. The routes plied by free traders should be bought by the companies, who can leverage their greater resources and expertise to better secure both life and cargo. Published by the Mearsphere Broadsheet Company. Very cool. I believe, Bill, this is the first newspaper clipping we've, we've, we've had. Um, yes, it, it is, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be exactly like a newspaper as we think of them, but it's, it's, it's kind of along those lines. Um, I like, it's, uh, very cool. Now, uh, uh, I don't, I don't really want to ring this up for fear of, you know, um, uh, inciting a flame war in comments or anything, but, uh, let's talk politics for a second. Was, was this, was this writing perhaps informed by recent events between the US and Iran? Not even remotely. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> the entire time you were reading that, I was like, oh, this is just an analog for what's going on uh, and Bill will have comments. So I need to update my protocol here. And every time I think you're talking about real world events, like Hong Kong protests or the impending up uh, World War Three, it's not that. No matter how much I think your writing implies that, I now know how to proceed, Bill. <laughs> Listen, man, Edgar, death of the author. Just because I'm not thinking it doesn't mean it's not there. 
I mean, because you can totally read that read into it. Um, you know, and really? like the, the, there's one line at the at the very end. You see, uh, you say between increased attacks, harsher climates, and the subversion of our trade and moral by other nations. I was like, you're totally just outlining the problems in the world as is. You know, the increased attacks yeah. being the heightened confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, harsher climates being the problem with climate change, and the subversion of our trade and morals by other nations. So that's like unfair trade tariffs, trade wars, etc. Um, you can 100% uh, read contemporary geopolitics into this. And I think that's really cool. Yes, yeah, you absolutely can, and you're meant to, but I just wasn't thinking of Iran. I wasn't thinking of Iran in the United States. Were you thinking of someone else? More the kind of the general um, rise of global fascism and ethno-nationalism um, and capitalism's um, role in promoting that and uh, and enabling it. Oh, we're told. Just generally. The comments are going to be great. <laughs> Down with capitalism always, always gets much love in comments. <laughs> Um, no, but joking, joking aside, I think that is really cool that you um, that it's kind of p- pitched in this in this mad way where you can read it as literally it's just an attack by animals on this small town, or it's you know, this is a proxy for well, problematic events in the world. So, a second by monsters at least. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second because I've underlined that and I want to I want to talk about them. Um, so usual thing, I'm going to go through top to bottom. Uh, go for it. I'll pop, uh, pitch my highlighted things at you, and you can talk about it if uh, if there's any anything interesting to say. Um, first thing I have is here the Musphere Zhikav uh, route. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm assuming, and you're saying that like this town. Um, this settlement uh, lies off a tributary of the main trading corridor. Do I then take it that the Mirsphere Zhikav route is basically just a big river? No, because remember the 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 Abeski the spires don't travel by by boat; they travel by airship. Oh, okay. So this town just happens to be at the tributary of a so a main trading corridor for some other culture, not the Abeski. The tributary isn't a river. The tributary is just like a smaller kind of route, a lesser route. Ah, oh, oh, okay. I am sorry. I took that as being rivers. I'm sorry. No, no. Sorry, that, that, that's fair. If that's not that's not clear, that's not clear. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I see. I see why the, where it was un, unclear now. Um, yeah. So, um, if you look at the map that I made uh, a, a while back, um, Mirsphere and Shikav are both quite far north, and so there's like a route that you kind of commonly fly between them. Um, but these are the main settlements and. The, the area in general is kind of sparsely settled, um, but there are towns and centers of industry dotted around. And this is like a small town off one of the kind of the lesser trade, um, the lesser travel trade routes that feeds into the Mirsvirtajikav trade route. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. I will throw the links to that map in the, um, Cheers. in the show notes for people if they want to go check it out. Um, now, I, I underlined unknown beasts because obviously down below you talk about them more, so we'll skip that. Uh, investigation by the officers of the vessel, the Aspire. We have met the Aspire before. Do you want to give a recap on that? Uh, yes, we have uh, come across the Aspire before. So the very first thing that I wrote set on Ikern, introducing uh, Handway, or introducing uh, the Spires and this, this whole planet, 
uh, was a letter from Yarta Yartlin to his cousin. Um, and he was serving on the Aspire. So this is the vessel that, that Yar was on. Cool. Um, and it, it, that was tied into the, the, the brief narrative thread of like there being a treasure on some ship that they were trying to find, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, so my next point is a free trader. What's a free trader? So as I said, um, there's a lot of kind of outlying towns and the, the Aveski don't travel by land over long distances because they have uh, vessels, they have, they have airships. And also, as is kind of outlined here, this is an extreme example, but as is outlined here, the, the land in general can be quite dangerous with the, the, the animals and stuff that live there. And it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite rugged and things. So free traders are independent. Um, they're like caravans, like like trading caravans, mm-hmm. independent merchants who have who own an airship, and they're part of kind of the supply line and the part of the trade that connects all of these outlying towns. You'll you'll have someone who kind of travels to kind of larger hubs and and depots and brings things back and forth between them and between. The, the the outlying towns or you'll have people who travel kind of circuits just among the towns and, and facilitates that kind of smaller level trade just like directly between people stuff like that um mm-hmm. and they're very necessary because they're the main way of of getting around because you know if you've got a a, a hundred miles of thick forest inhabited by you know let's say bears and tigers and things um between towns then this is very, very necessary. Otherwise, they would be completely isolated. Sure. Um, so, like, yeah, traders not associated with a big centralized company. Yes, the free traders are not. The free traders are independent yeah. merchants. Cool. Um, so then we have the attack, uh, and you uh, say that the uh, attack is conducted by the Arvix, by three Arvix. And yes. the quote here you have here is, um, they conducted the ca- attack with apparent intelligence uh, and cruelty. Apparent intelligence? Mm-hmm. Are, are, are we talking animals or are we talking sentient creatures here? What, what's, what's going on? Um, they are very good hunters. Um, and they, like, from, from looking at the progression of events from, from what they could tell, the officers of the Aspire, like, could see planning and and forethought and reaction to situations um in what seemed like an intelligent manner and um arvix are are known to hunt that way or known to 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 fight that way whether or not they're sentient is not really clear i mean no one no one's talked to them um do are the arvix humanoid no no so can you describe their uh form um i haven't fully decided yet but I'm thinking uh, something, it will be in some respects like some kind of terrifying giant bird, I suspect. Oh, In some respects, okay. not totally. Okay, so, yeah, so we should take the word beast, like you said, to mean monster, as opposed to animal. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And also um, the apparent intelligence and cruelty, like it was very clear that they had deliberately killed every person they hadn't just left the ones that were hiding they had dug them up in order to kill them and like why don't know you'd have to ask them but no one's ever talked to one before bill 
Um, you could be the first, I, I, but I'm I'm assuming the the raid or this attack or something. Is it just an act of cruelty, or were they just trying to get goods from the town uh, and whatever? And it was you know like resource gain, or is it just like we hate those humans? I, I mean, like why do why do man eating tigers attack people? Yeah, a th- well, threat, threat and hunger, uh, possibly. Yeah. Okay, so that that's interesting. Okay, um, and I suppose it feeds into the idea of like apparent intelligence. Like maybe this wasn't a uh, a thought out militaristic maneuver. It was like we feel threatened by this town, um, and it can be an instinct instinctual sort of thing. That's pretty cool. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, we we talked about the uh, increased uh, attacks, harsher climates, and subversion of our trade and morals with other nations. We talked about how that like is reminiscent of yeah. contemporary geopolitics. Um, the the last thing uh, you uh, say and the last note I have is uh, this broadsheet uh, company uh, basically mm-hmm. says that in order to 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 um, maintain security on this route, they should uh, buy up the routes that the free traders use. And my response to that was like, yeah. no, don't do that. That's terrible. Uh, and here's the part yeah. where everyone uh, everyone's going to shout at us because it's going to be down with capitalism. It's taking a free market approach to something that I don't think the free market should uh, should be involved with. Well, it's 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 not a, it, it is kind of a free market as it stands because it's it's independent traders and like you know, that's that's how they make their living. Um, but it's more it's more um, consolidation and monopoly, and it's. Uh, attempting to to leverage a tragedy for for profit and to to inc- increase your own uh, capital and power. Um, that's that's what what is happening here. Uh, the Mirsphere Broadsheet Company is owned by the Tamar Company. Oh, there you go. It is published by the the Tamari. Um, so they're using this to promote their their own agenda of. Um, pushing out the free traders and having a greater control over the the trade in this region, uh, did, and, you know, man, eliminating competitors and so on. Do you think that maybe you missed a trick um, here uh, by making um, the uh, Arviks be like monsters? Like, would it not? Would it maybe have been cooler if they were? like hum- sentient humanoid people like a race of people or whatever and you could play a little bit of geopolitics here in that it's like a stage sort of thing someone has stoked fear amongst uh the arviks and as such they have lashed out um and that's a great excuse for the broadsheet company and tomorrow company to be all like well i mean it's chaos down there uh we had nothing to do with it and i think the only way to solve it is to uh for us to monopolize it um, possibly. One of the things I wanted to do with this, though, is um, address the fact that I have been... I, the germ of the idea for Ikern was planetary romance, and I haven't written mm. a single monster yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so I needed I, to put some damn monsters in the thing, and here's some monsters. But I mean, I suppose you can you can kind of get the same result by like um, you could pressure the monsters to to attack the place, like um, I don't know, um, yeah, log their forest or whatever, and then they think they they perceive that town or whatever as being the threat. Um, so I suppose there are ways for the Tamar Company 
if, if you wanted to go that way, to kind of uh, cajole the monsters into um, into inciting violence such that they can reap the monetary gain of it. Yeah. But they're not going to put that in their own newspaper. No, no, of course not. No, no. But we would read it like that. You know, we would be all like, oh, that's, that's terrible and propaganda. But yeah, no, they obviously wouldn't spell it out like that in their own propaganda. Yeah. I mean, if if the Arviks were intelligent, um, that would be a, a possible thing that is happening here, for sure. Um, and then, oh, sorry, unrelated, and I didn't make a note of it, it just popped into my head. You mentioned at the very, very start that, like, this is not a newspaper company as we know it. Um, what, what, what do you mean by that? Like, do you mean that it's not a newspaper and company in the sense that it's not, uh, it's, it's essentially like a company propaganda? It's not that it's not a newspaper company. It's that the, the product, the physical thing, isn't exactly like a newspaper. It's, it's, um, it's more like a, a historical broadsheet. Like, it's just like, you'd get you'd get a handful of articles on like one big sheet. Oh, okay. Is that the way uh broadsheets yeah. worked back in the day? They were just a single sheet with a with like four articles or whatever. I th- I think I think that was something that did happen at one stage. Yeah, I think in the kind of late 16 early 1700s um broadsheets were just big things with like articles printed on them. I'm not not oh. 100% on that now that I say it out loud, but it's it could be the case. <laughs> I remember a world where broadsheets were commonplace. And I guess they probably still are a little bit like people still, I'm assuming people still print them. Um, but I remember thinking mm-hmm. to myself, what, like these are the stupidest things. Like, like if someone said, how can we make this ergonomically, ergonomically as awkward as humanly possible? <laughs> and someone would go, let's print it about five times too big to be comfortably open in any sort of space. And then someone went, let's go with it. I couldn't believe that 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 passed any sort of like test or anything. And we were all fine with it. We'd like, you'd see people on a train with these giant like bed sheets, just like smashing into other people trying to open their thing. It was, it was nonsense. It was crazy. What if we had books, right? But only a few pages and we have to publish them every day. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. <laughs> but what if we make them stupidly big? <laughs> what if we make them completely unwieldy like i wonder do you think maybe uh, the unwieldiness is a sort of like a social signifier as in like i am so smart i am going to uh take in all this information printed on this giant sheet whereas if you were sitting there with a little little miniature thing it'd be all like well that person's really stupid like that that thing only contains like a single story or whatever (laughs) i'm the smartest person i know because i only read billboards I know, but there has to be some reason. There has to be some reason that. No, no, I, I, I get you. Yeah, I get you. It's there. There is sense to what you're what you're saying. I'm just drawing it to an absurd extreme. Um, do you want to hear? Do you want to hear a a uh, damning story of past Edgar? Yes, nearly always. Nearly always that everyone is going to upon telling this, everyone's going to think lesser of me. But I need to remind everyone: past Edgar is not current Edgar. This is important. Uh, in school, as part of English class, we were doing, I guess, like the media section of it, like um, mm-hmm. newspapers and journalism and that sort of crack. I think it was like, I must have been like 12, 13, like quite young. Um, and I wasn't really conscious of the world and other people's feelings. And, you know, different people do different things. Uh, and on a test, um, we were asked, what is 
is the difference between broadsheets and tabloids. So broadsheets being the giant thing, tabloids being the smaller form thing. And I was mm. like, my answer was, uh, intelligent people read broadsheets. Because I was like, that's like the Times, <laughs> the Independent. And then I was like, uh, what you call it? And I think I might have even wrote all the tests. The stupid people read tabloids because that's like the trashy... Um, oh, God. The, the trashy things or whatever. And so, like, that was fine. Like, I was an idiot for doing that. But the thing that sticks in my memory is that uh, our, as a collectively as a class, we did very poorly on this test. And I remember the teacher, Miss Quinn, she, like, basically called us all out the next time after the test and, like, went through all of the most problematic answers and called the person out in front of the class. And she called me out. She was like, who wrote this abject nonsense and i had to like put up my hand and she tore into me i think that was one of the first times where i suddenly became cognizant of uh i culture the way people operate it was just it was it was mortifying man i'll never forget miss quinn tearing me a new one in front of all my peers <laughs> for for being horrifically insensitive towards everyone it was no good um i remember Around the same age, maybe a little bit older, 14 maybe, uh, in English class, everyone had to bring in a magazine and and discuss it. Um, mm-hmm. And like, like people like brought in you know, music magazines or, or whatever, sports or whatever. Um, and I brought in an issue of the Weekly World News. <laughs> which I, Are you familiar with the Weekly World News? Uh, no, but I'm assuming it's like a an economist style thing. No, no. No? <laughs> the Wiki World News um, leading story was about how uh, that that week, or that, that um, yeah, week, it's Weekly World News, was about how <laughs> they found Goliath, as in the giant from David and Goliath, and the, the hole in his head matched that from a, a thirty eight caliber revolver. <laughs> And it, like it, it printed the most ridiculous, like completely nonsensical news stories. Um, if you just Google it, like Google image search it, um, here's some here. Uh, Mall found on the moon is one of them. Um, the first photos of heaven. They published that. Um, gay aliens found in UFO wreck. Um, survivors found on the Titanic. Uh, <laughs> they had a recurring thing about Bat Boy, who was like a half bat, half human child that was living feral in the United States. At that time, I think he had joined the US military to go to Iraq. I think he was, they were like trying to, trying to have him as a hero at that point. Um, oh, man. Yeah, so that was my, oh yeah, and um, th- they would like refer to real things sometimes. Like, you know, you know, the, the Iceman that they found in the Alps, Utsi or whatever yeah, yeah, his name yeah. was? Yeah, he was alive. He woke up, according to the article in that in that issue. Um, yeah, I like. Well, so what did you did you like have to stand up in front of your class and like give a presentation on this like beautiful bit of satire? I think so, and like the teacher didn't really know what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Classic Bill, classic Bill, trolling trolling the world since inception. Uh, that's class about it. All right. Well, so anyhow, I have that. That is all I have to say. Uh, that's all of my notes for uh, increasing danger in northern northern settlements. Have you got anything to add? 
Um, no, uh, I think I think that's everything. Um, I think I've used the name felon before um, in in this setting, but yeah, people there's other people called Bill. There's other people called Edgar. Nothing wrong with that. Um, Hardly any though. So it's always fun when I do meet another Edgar. I'm like, that's so crazy. We share the same. <laughs> how how does this work? Because I'm assuming if you're called Sean, you meet Sean's all the time, and that's perfectly that's a perfectly normal part of a, like everyday experience for you. But for me to meet yeah. another Edgar is bizarre. For me to refer to another human by my name is so utterly alien to me that I find it really awkward to conduct myself in those situations. <laughs> That's so weird. Um, um you've 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 pretty much picked up on everything there. Um the 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 kind of propaganda stuff at the end. I'm I'm glad that, that was that, that was picked up. Um and you've yeah you got you got the the right idea about it. It's it's very much trying to consolidate and end the the existing system um in favor of uh, a, a more kind of monopolized one and leveraging leveraging a tragedy to do so will the evil tamar company exe- uh, succeed in their plans to monopolize the system tune in next week for your installment <laughs> of world billing next week next week um cool well anyway so if that's if that's all that uh shall we move on to my video let's do it whose link i neglected to leave in the show notes i'm assuming you can find it i have seen it you have seen it um so as usual i made a video and we're about to talk uh, about it and um, this video is called why these are the best numbers and that is referring to uh, a system of numerals created by a bunch of middle schoolers uh, in 1994 called the Kaktovic Inupiaq numerals uh, a system designed to notate their uh, the base 20 counting system of Inupiaq which is a dialect of um oh which is a language a dialect uh, up in northern Alaska um uh, language let's just go language yeah language um and uh the the video did ex- really well like oh nice way better than expected but just a little little bit of like inside uh how the sausage is made complaint here youtube <sighs> really really wants you to make long videos and it's right. so it's so apparent when you make a shorter video, and the, the, that shorter video gets so many more views than what is what I usually get. Like my my metrics were like you're doing five hundred percent better than usual, and I'm like, well, that's oh, wow. great. This must mean, yeah. I was like, oh, this must mean that uh, January is going to be a a good month um, monetarily. And then you go check the mm-hmm. revenue you get from this, and it just be it's all like your revenue's down two percent. I'm like, oh, it's so frustrating. And like, I get the need to incentivize longer content because otherwise you'll just get like clickbait title plus five second video of some nonsense. And it doesn't matter how long people watch for, as long as you get the click, you get the cash and that's fine. It's a good thing to incentivize watch time, but it's just, it feels so heavily skewed towards make longer stuff that it's like, well, sometimes a short video is a good thing. And it's it feels weird to be kind of punished for that, even though the video did really well. Um, but that's like first world problem. Like no one actually cares about that other than me. 
Um, mm. But uh, yeah, so what, uh, as usual, what are your thoughts? And then I'll launch into my uh, couple of things that I want to chat about. Um, you know, every so often when we're we're recording and I'll say, oh, you know, just as I was thinking, just as I was watching the video, uh, I had this thought, and then you immediately address that or whatever. Oh, yeah. I hope this is one of those times. It, well, this was bigger than that, because oh. before you put out the video, or before you put out the script for the video, I saw this on somewhere on Facebook, on some Facebook group or something. I saw the, the Wikipedia article about the this this uh, system of numerals. And I was like, oh, man, Edgar, should, Edgar would really like that. I should send that to him. And then, like, two days later... Out comes the script. <laughs> but also, Bill, we, we talked about those new rules on the show before. Oh, did we? Okay, I couldn't remember whether we had or not. Yeah, no, um, we totally had. Um, but that's crazy. That's the, Man, that's the universe telling you something there, man. Some yeah. sort of some sort of uh, coalescence. Oh, God, actually, I'm going to put into the green room. I want to complain about people in the green room. Hold on. Uh, complaining about the universe. Okay, um... Uh, but okay, so I, I I made your dreams come true. Uh, anything else? <laughs> um, no, it was it was a really solid video. I thought um, explained things very very clearly. I mean, it, it is a great system. Um, I had never noticed the stuff about the uh, the, the visual element of of doing mathematical operations. I, I had never copped that before. Um, mm-hmm. So that was cool to see. Yeah. I, I, I have no, nothing really constructive or destructive to say. Just it was, yeah, it was, it was really good. That always fills me with such relief. Like, I, I really enjoy feedback both from you and listeners. But when you make a thing and people are just like, yeah, good. You're like, oh, good. There's no mistakes in there. There was like, it, it's really solid when people just go, yeah, perfect. I'm like, oh, yes. Um, uh, there, there were a couple of things that the, the audience brought up that I want to uh, talk about really quickly. Um, there was a, a good amount of people who were, I'd like to call them computational trick skeptics, who were like, mm-hmm. um, they, they were like, yeah, okay, so that's really cool with those visual little tricks that you outline for those examples. But like, it feels very much like you're cherry picking examples and this wouldn't actually hold all the time. Uh, and to those people, I say, you are a hundred percent correct. Um, it definitely, no system uh, beyond just straight up tally marks can be uh, one where you conduct mathem- mathematical operations just by eyeballing things. There's always going to be cases where it gets uh, complicated and tricky and you have to resort to like in quotes like standard maths um the point is not to be not that i'm cherry picking but rather that these computational tricks exist at all like that's the point like we don't have really any computational trick to make long division easier yeah uh you know and it so doesn't the, make it harder exactly it doesn't yeah, make yeah just doing it the normal way we do it any harder yeah exactly yeah um, so it was me. It was it was me pointing out the sort of pros of the system, not trying to say that this system is like a devoid of all sort of arithmetic and it's all computational tricks the entire way. Because again, unless you have straight up tally marks where like the number one thousand and three is literally one thousand and three strokes next to one another, you're you're never going to have something that's entirely visually intuitive. Yeah. I mean, that's clearly the most logical. It's just very time-consuming. 
Exactly. Yeah. It's it's you're trading, uh, and this is a kind of cool thing about these sort of feature systems is you have to, uh, if you're going to construct them for your language, for example, you have to trade uh, sort of computational optimization for um, processing power almost. Like, because again, like the tally marks are the most computational friendly. It's literally like you look at the amount of strokes and you see how many. Uh, how many times another bunch of strokes divides into it? No maths really required. You just you just try to piece things together. But that's obviously it takes an awful lot of processing power on the part of a human to be able to determine the difference between like 110 strokes beside one another and 150 strokes. You know, so you're trading yeah. visual intuitive uh, in, intuition for computation, and that's that's a really cool balance uh, to to play with when creating these things. Um, and there were people in the comments who were kind of like, uh, who felt like the Kaktovic Inupiaq numerals didn't do a very good trading system. And that's entirely fine. It's just an opinion. They were like, it's really hard to distinguish between these numerals. I find it very hard to look at them. And for those people, yeah. uh, the, the trade-off was not done correctly there. Um, and so, yeah, interesting thing to play with and to be aware of if you're going to go for a featural numeral system in your conlangs. Yeah, I, I can see that. Those those that's a, a valid criticism there. Yeah, that that it's all um, very visually similar. For sure, hundred um, percent. And yeah, that's a that makes problem. Sense. Your people are going to run into nonstop with these type of systems, and they have to just be cognizant of. Uh, which is actually a really yeah. good segue into the next point. Uh, loads of people brought up. They were like, "Hang on, this is just the Mayan numeral system, except with different shapes." Uh, and the answer to that is yes, although it's. Uh, an instance of spontaneous invention in that, as far as I can tell, the kids that came up with the KI numerals had no notion of the Mayan numeral system, nor did they have a notion of anything needed to construct a writing system, a, a system of numerals. Like, they didn't have uh, an idea of what bases are. Um, yeah. They, they didn't know what featural numeral systems. They just kind of, like... They the the story of how this his invention is they were raised on standard Hindu Arabic numerals, uh, and then they were like, "But hang on, our language counts to twenty And then they were like, "Well, we can't use the Hindu Arabic numerals." So then they tried to adapt them a little bit, and they found that that was a mess. So they kind of like threw out everything, and from first principles, almost like rediscovered the principles of creating numeral systems, which is just like ingenious on their part so they had no mm. idea about they didn't look at the Mayan numbers and be like we'll take them um, it just so happened that feature systems tend to be quite similar yeah I mean and if they're both if they're both vigesimal uh, then they're going to be automatically quite similar anyway for sure for sure like I can't, uh, yeah I mean I just the, yeah I can't see how it would be otherwise yeah, exactly. Um, and like again, like I said, with the feature systems, like if you're doing a feature system, you're going to have you're going to be counting strokes, uh, counting numbers with strokes. Uh, you're probably going to have some sort of sub base in there to make sure it doesn't turn into straight up tally marks. And then beyond that, it's really just a matter of like, do you use lines or dots and things like that? So feature systems tend to be yeah. quite quite similar anyways it's just a, a function of the thing in the same way that if we were to make a hangul version of english where each of the letters were a little picture of what the mouth does when pronouncing yeah. the letters you're going to end up with something looking somewhat similar to hangul uh there's just yeah. it just 
there's only a finite number of ways that one can stylistically depict them out. Um, same thing goes with the new. <laughs> well, I wonder. <laughs> funny that you use that specific example, Edgar. Why? Why is that funny? Because I remember when you made your featural um, featural script for Oa, people were saying, "Oh, you just reinvented Korean." I was like, didn't yeah. reinvent Korean. I made a featural system. It's exactly, like yeah. a totally different language. It just has a sort of similar underlying design principle. Now, in in their defense, I was kind of going for ape Korean as much as possible because I wanted to make a video about Hangul, but without making a video yeah. about Hangul. So like to, to almost like tr- play the part of your man, King Sejong, and just be all like, let's start from the, yeah. from the first principles of letters should be pictures of the mouse. And let's go from there. So to almost take the audience through this maybe is what King Zhejiang taught when he came up with Hangul. Sure, but I, I still think it was a bit of a, a silly uh, thing to say he just invented Korean because it was a like a different inventory, and you didn't even it wasn't even yeah. to do with any of the language of that. It was ju- literally just a script for sure and yeah. an orthography. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Thank you for sticking up for me, Bill. Four years later, <laughs> <laughs> I thought of it at the time, it just never came up. <laughs> um, I, I would imagine we probably talked about it on the show way back when. Uh, someone can fact check me on that. Um, but anyhow, mm-hmm. the, and the last thing to do with the uh, with the sort of criticisms for this video was uh, a good a good number of people, not not a massive amount of people, but a good number of people uh, in uh, uh, below the YouTube video in comments uh, were saying that they they took issue with my use of the words "no mats required" uh, and the the basic shtick of the argument was that like but edgar the these like little visual computational tricks it's still mathematics like geometry for example involves or can involve no numbers and just the manipulations of shape shapes in space uh that doesn't make that any less mathematical and to those people they are correct 100 percent correct that is that is by the letter of the law correct but i was going for a sort of I have a friend who has dyscalculia, um, who struggle. That that's a condition where you struggle very, very badly with mathematics. And I was mm. thinking about pitching it to them, and for them, uh, maths is numbers. It's computation. It's arithmetic. That's what maths is for them. Uh, when they say yeah. I struggle with maths, they don't think I struggle with geometry they think i struggle with algebra arithmetic etc and in a sort of i was going for the everyday colloquial sense of maths when people say the word maths it's synonymous with numbers um so that's where i was yeah. going for what i meant no maths required you don't need to think numerically uh, but th- those people who said that the no maths required was a bit of a uh, uh, a bit wrong uh the wording was a bit wrong i agree 100 um but it's more impactful, I think, when you say no maths required, and it sells the idea that even if you're bad at mathematics, the no maths required element here will make this a system that you can get on board with and use uh, properly. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Those are my uh, my uh, three things I wanted to bring up. I have nothing else to say about the video. Real quick, before we do Bank of Artifacts here, 
Um, Yo. Just a thing, when I mentioned in the recording there about like, it's the universe telling you something, I began thinking about people who actually use that phrase seriously. And then a, a thing popped into my mind that I need to, I want to complain to you about, Bill, because I feel like uh, you will understand and you will sympathize with my frustration with regards to this. Okay? Shoot. Um, so I met up with a friend recently um who you and I know but will will remain anonymous um and we were just we met up for christmas uh just you know catch up festive season that sort of thing um and i was like mm-hmm. what's going on with you any crack in your life and this person says oh i'm going to see an astrologer uh as in and not seeing as in romantically seeing seeing as in professionally seeing an astrologer and the same way you'd see a physio or whatever uh, and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, here we go. Uh, uh, but for the sake of like being nice, I was like, oh, that's cool. Tell me about tell me about this or whatever. And so the, the, the person just like talked about what what going to an astrologer involves. And then it turned out, Bill, right, that this person is paying 160 euro per consultation to go to the astrologer and like for that privilege this person has been told things like oh the planets aren't aligned correctly ergo this uh, new relationship that you're currently embarking on um this person had recently met a new romantic partner this new relationship is not going to work out the person the astrologer told this person that they should ditch this new fledgling romantic relationship because i don't know saturn is doing something and and for that privilege they got charged 160 quid and i did some research on this particular astrologer and it's just like like it's not that i was expecting them to be like an upstanding citizen or whatever because they're peddling nonsense but it's just it's so transparently bullshit and it costs 160 quid like that that is that is more than doctors charge you know that's more than like the, the, the most highly educated people in our society charge for their services. 160 quid, Bill. Oh, I nearly lost it. It was just, oh, God damn it. So, yeah, I just wanted to complain about that. That's awful that that exists in the modern world. Astrology is, is, seems to be kind of on an upswing recently. Really? I've seen a lot more people. I think so, yeah. Oh. Or maybe we're just seeing more of it. And, like, if if someone has a tool that helps them formalize and and kind of get their thoughts in order and gives them a framework to consider things um that's that's a good thing and you know if anyone wants to practice their spirituality or whatever however they do i mean fine i don't it's not for me but i you know it's their business whatever but like that just sounds exploitative. Yeah, the, exactly. I think if you if you want to do your own astrology in your own time and you derive great enjoyment from that and it helps you, that is totally fine. I don't dictate to others how to do things, but I, do, I take, just like you said there, I take issue with a person presenting themselves as like an expert and then charging massive prices for it like that's 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 the 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 insidious part of it all and like it's a you you prey on because people don't go to astrologers uh or psychics or whatever if everything's going gravy and they have you know clear goals and they're hitting targets they go if they need some guidance in life so you're preying on 
people who are not in an optimal position. And that's gross. And like that astrologer, like I, when I looked into him, I was like, that person should be ashamed of themselves. Like, like utterly ashamed of themselves. And they, but they're not. And they just continue to make, you know, I'm what I can only assume is like hundreds of thousands a year. And it's just, it's so demoralizing and it drives me up the wall. Mm. Anyhow, I'm sorry. I just want to complain. Yeah. It's, 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 it's awful. Like, and I, I just, I, I thought to myself, like, I, I could, I don't want to be all like, oh, I'm so virtuous and because I'm not, but it's just I, like, I could I never, <laughs> thanks, Bill. cheers for the ringing endorsement there. Uh, but like, I could never, <laughs> I, I thought about like, could I, like, I could totally hop on this bandwagon. I'm a space nerd. I know my space. I'll download some of those, whatever they're called, ephemeral charts or whatever and make some nonsense reading and then charge whatever. Undercut the chap and charge a hundred quid an hour or whatever. And I was like, but I'd feel so disgusting as a human doing so that like yeah. I would never do it. Like, and, and I just, I'd love to hop into those people's heads and just be like, what's going on in there? Like, what are you thinking? Like, do you think that you're actually doing good in the world? Or do you know that you're being exploitative? Like, I, I I don't know. Like, they're just... Just those people are strange, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I, I can't understand that mindset at all. But, like, I can't understand the mindset of uh, predatory landlords either. And, yeah. the, like, the, they're a huge problem. Um, yeah. Can I defend the predatory landlords just for a second to distinguish... The absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going to anyways. You can shout at me later. Uh, I'm I'm with you though. For the predatory landlords are bad, but like I can I can place myself in their shoes and think to myself, well, these people are saying they're providing people like a literal place to live. Now they're probably overcharging and crappy conditions and all the nastiness that goes with predatory landlords. But at least they they are, you know, peddling in things that exist in the universe you know whereas astrologers they're just selling like lies do you know what i mean like so i find a a predatory landlord and an astrologer i find that they would have to go through two very different thought processes to justify their existence and one i can understand the predatory landlord and the astrologer i just cannot understand how they could justify what they do to themselves i mean it's possible that they believe it. Yeah, but like, but it involves like that's that's fair. But that involves like just such levels of blind belief that is unfathomable to me because like so much of it just makes like is essentially magic. It's like stuff like oh Saturn the, uh, again to bring up an example of this person. This person was like um, oh I'm thinking about moving abroad, and the astrologer was like oh Saturn is rising over that country, so that would be an advantageous thing to do. And I was like. How can Saturn rise over one right, country? but that's what I'm saying, man. Like, it makes, like, but it's not even, it, like, if you believe that, that's okay. But, like, even questioning it ever so slightly, it just brings the house of cards down completely. Like, so much of it is just abject nonsense. You know? It's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think people can still believe in it, even if it's, if, if it is apparent as nonsense to, to others. People can still, like, genuinely believe in it themselves, but scumbag landlords know they're scumbags. If you're, if you're deliberately, like, keeping places in, in bad conditions and exploiting workers and, you know, making people homeless and stuff. 
do do okay again i need to state that i agree with you right i so don't think that what i'm about to say is my actual position but devil's advocate here for a second um what about the notion that everyone thinks they're the hero of their own story do you think maybe scumbag landlords think that they're like I'm providing so many people. Yeah, okay. Like, I, I'm I'm wrong. I'm I'm wrong when I said I'm wrong when I said they know they're scumbags. Yeah, no, that's 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 that wasn't accurate. But like, I think I think you can genuinely believe in a belief system and think that you're helping people with your knowledge. But I I I don't know how you could think that you're helping people by okay breaking the law in in providing. In, in, in providing unsafe living environments. I sure. Mean, I don't I don't know how you would justify that to yourself. Yeah. Actually all But I can conceive I can conceive of how you could you could justify something like being uh an, an astrologer. Um Yeah. I mean like like there, there's there's religions and spiritual practices of all flavors, and they can't all be true. But not all the people who who do them as careers that doesn't make them all bad people. Now, I would say that most, it's very likely the guy you're talking about is um, some kind of predator. Um, but I don't know. Um, I would say it's, it was overwhelmingly the case that, he, that this person is. But I can still see that other astrologers might genuinely think what they're doing is, is a service and not, not be malicious. Yeah. I guess, and I suppose because people, it's going to make me sound like a dick, and I'm sorry, but I suppose in general people have, um, tend to have little knowledge about space, mainly because people find it boring, um, that I can kind of see someone looking at space and being all like, oh yeah, Jupiter and Saturn are in alignment, and that does a thing. You know, I, I guess I can kind of see people misunderstanding facts of the universe to such an extent that their belief seems plausible maybe mm. and maybe i'm just too into my space to accept that people could you know with all seriousness believe that saturn is rising over a country in europe <sighs> i don't know anyhow bank of artifexia <laughs> let's go into the bank of artifexia for something more fun. All right. So uh, this month, uh, <laughs> we have another contributing to the Bank of Artifacts. Yeah. And this comes from second time writer, Kali, um, who uh, I'm going to assume lives I- in Canada uh, because they sent us, and you can click on the link there, Bill, and you can see a picture of the note. They sent us a 20, 20 Canadian dollars, um, which, which I really like. And I actually... Like if uh, links in the show notes, for people to go check. I actually take back anything I ever said about uh, Canadian money looking like monopoly monopoly money. It looks no more or less like monopoly money than any other type of money. It, I think, it looks great. I mean, there's a bit too much Queen going on. There's there's okay. two instances of Queen right beside yeah. each other. If you count the watermark, uh, it looks a bit weird. But like, uh, it's it's really good. And on the reverse side of the note, there's like um. Uh, indigenous inspired artwork which I think is really cool looking um, Kali gives uh, some um, mm. uh, some info on that and I think it's really cool a uh, special thing about this note is that it is not a polymer note which uh, apparently modern Canadian notes are um, it is a paper note and this is part of the 2004 
series of notes. So if we assume that this was this this uh, a note came into existence in two thousand and four, this is a sixteen year old note that I was just sent by Collie, and that is very cool. It's pristine looking in the photo here. Uh yeah, it's um, it's not it's not like pristine, like straight out of an ATM pristine, but it's like. Uh, clearly, Collie has been has kept it like in between a book or something. It's very it's very flat. Hmm. Yeah, I think it looks great. Uh, thank, you, shout- thank you, Collie. Thank you, Collie. Shout out to the way they printed the twenty again. It links in the show notes uh, for people uh, on the front. I believe it's the front. the The twenty is like it's green and it's got just uh, it, the fill of the uh, of the numbers is just a whole bunch of uh, maple leaves which from a distance looks like little weed plants and it looks like a 420 note. Like, I'm like, what? I had to like, do a double take. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, okay, maple leaves. I get it. <laughs> um, does, does that not set off your trypophobia? No, it's not. It needs to have holes. It needs to have, I need to be able to look into the thing. Um, uh, the canonical example for me with the whole being afraid of holes thing is if you make pancakes with any sort of raising agent in them and you fry them, the pancake will fluff up and then it will start to get, oh God, it's just so gross when I think about it. It'll start to get little holes on the surface, but there's also little holes inside the pancake as well. So you, when you see, when you look down a hole, you're looking into like this, this chasm of holes and it's just, oh, it just makes my skin crawl every time, man. <laughs> So this does not trigger that, but thankfully, because that would be that would be not good. Uh, I'm look I'm looking at the Wikipedia article here to see what this what all this artwork is. So the photograph of Elizabeth II is from the year 2000. Um, it was taken specifically for uh, for this banknote, and it appears next to a vignette of the center block of Parliament Hill. So oh, that's the. Um, Part of the part of the the Houses of Parliament for Canada, I guess, uh, the main building of the Canadian Parliamentary Complex, right? And yep. on the back, because that was the thing that stuck out at me there. There was a, a I thought it was a church, but it, um, I wasn't sure what it was. And then we've got on the back illustrations of an artwork by Bill Reed, uh, a Haida artist or an artist of Haida heritage, and a sculpture of the Raven and the First Man, and an extract from a novel. Cool. Yeah, there's there's a lot of art on it actually. There it is chock blocked and it's it's actually mad because when you look at it you don't really think uh it's that chock blocked. Now, like I said before, if you hold it up to the light, you'll get multiple instances of the queen, mm. which is a bit uh cumbersome. Uh but in normal viewing conditions, it doesn't look too too many. Too too many. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh oh god, all the comments we're going to get from people who love the royal family. Oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, the yeah that is exactly what Collie, Collie says in the the note here uh, Bill Reed Canadian artist of Haida descent um, uh, uh, the Haida being uh, famous for their paintings and totem poles and Reed is inspired by their, their work so it's really cool it's really cool does a good job blending the sort of like um, old with the new so to speak on the note I really like it for those who are interested 20 Canadian dollars is uh, at the time of recording 1379 euro and 15 dollars 40 cents and it's also 5389 in uh, Turkmenistan money which I'm going to use as my new sort of bring it up every time because it's a total non sequitur <laughs> 
Uh, and yeah, that what's, is what's the Turkmenistan currency called? Uh, the manat, I think. I think it's what the Tur- Turkmen okay. manat. So it's it's fifty three. As we all know, it is fifty three eighty nine in Turkmen manat. Um, so yeah. Uh, so thank you very much, Kali. Uh, I would like to put out a new call for notes, if that's okay with you, Bill. Sure. I would like to put out a call for Mexican pesos. I'm banking on the fact that we most of our listeners are in the US and perhaps they have holidayed in Mexico at some stage um, and maybe they have some Mexican peso. So if anyone has the lowest denomination Mexican peso and would like to write into the show uh, and leave a little letter and we'll read it out um, on air, uh, you'll find the links to that in the show notes. Um, so please do if you can please do that would uh, be really cool Um, in general uh, I would put a call out for any North American currency but I find it a little bit harder to you know get I don't know San Lucian currency or Costa Rica currency or whatever I feel like that would be a little bit trickier I don't think we have a big listenership in those countries (laughs) I suspect not I suspect not Um, but yeah if anyone has Mexican pesos that would be class then the map would look baller it'll look like America's just like North America's just done and then we can uh, we can focus on South America after that so thank you so much Kali to writing in thank you so much to everyone for writing in this I adore Bank of Artifexia it's great thank yeah thank you so much it's it's a real fun kind of thing to see evolve over the Mm -hmm. months Um, and so with that that's uh, that's everything I have Bill Um, shall we shall we wrap up I think we'll we'll leave it at that. Oh, sorry. There is one last thing. Next time we record, folks, chances are quite high that we will be talking about Embassy Town in the green room. I'm about halfway through the book. Um, Bill reads a lot quicker cool. than I, so he'll definitely be done within the next month or whatever. I assume, anyways, Bill. Um, and so, if you want, get yourself a copy of Embassy Town. Links in the show notes. Pick it up. Have a read. We'll talk about it in uh, in the next green room. Uh, I am intrigued thus far. I think it'll lead to a good conversation. But anyhow, thank you for listening. Great. Uh, thank you to the patrons for supporting the show. Um, and uh, until next time, Edgar, Edgar out. out.